Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Folly You're Different. And if you're new, welcome. We are an award-winning, chart-topping podcast, or some people call us an oddcast, for those who value real, different, unedited dialogues about how to design a legendary business and a legendary life. And if you're a longtime listener, uh, bless you. Thank you so much. On this episode, we continue our run of top Silicon Valley venture capitalists with Naveen Chada, who leads Mayfield. And Mayfield is one of the oldest and most storied venture capital firms in the Silicon Valley startup world. Uh, Naveen is um, is a very uh, celebrated guy. He's been on the Forbes Midas list for a long time and is a top five investor, according to Forbes. He's invested in over 50 companies, 17 of which have gone public and 20 of which have been acquired. And I'll tell you, Naveen is a crazy smart guy. I also want to let you know I've known Mayfield and we've done business off and on together for a while. On this episode, we have a wide ranging conversation where we deal with everything from diversity to uh, philanthropy, Naveen's backstory, what he calls superhumans, and pay special attention to why Naveen thinks that biology is a technology. I'm telling you, this episode's a stunner. Now, if you're a business leader or marketer, why not check out the number one charting Lockhead on Marketing wherever you get legendary podcasts. My friends at NetSuite is the world's leading cloud business system. Check out netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. It's pretty clear from everything that is going on, uh, we are in a state of turmoil. And the main reason I say that is, uh, this is the biggest health crisis uh, many of us have seen in our lifetime. Uh, a lot of jobs have been lost. And then there is a lot of racial discrimination related events that are happening, which are extremely saddening on the patterns of persistent racial injustice against black Americans. Uh, so if you combine all those things together, it's not a good place to be. Yeah. And so um, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, remind me how old again Mayfield is. So Mayfield just celebrated its 50th year anniversary last year. We started in 1969. Uh, so this is our 51st year in business. Wow. That's, a, that's an extraordinary achievement for any company and particularly for a Silicon Valley company and particularly for a venture capital company. And so uh, what does it feel like to be the head of a 51-year-old uh, grand dame or OG or, uh, you know, one of the originals? No, it's a real blessing uh, to be a part of a firm and a leader of such an enduring institution. And that comes with a lot of responsibility to make sure we can last for another 50 years. And everything we do, we have to ensure it's all about people because one of the founding mottos of the firm is people make products. Products don't make people. People are everything. So whatever we do, we want to live by the people and do good. 
by others at the same time do well as a firm and for our investors and entrepreneurs. And so how do things look from, from your seat? I mean, you have an extraordinary position in Silicon Valley, both, both your, yourself personally and, and Mayfield as a firm. And uh, as a firm that's been around, that's seen many, many business cycles, what's your assessment of, of what's going on right now? So I would take a balanced view because my belief is crisis is an opportunity for the board. And there is a lot of innovation uh, that can still happen using technology. And you are seeing the way the disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street is and how well the tech stocks are doing. So I'm bullish on the long run, how technology can impact the world and change the way we work, live and play. But the short term has a lot of concerns due to people not having jobs, due to people not having their health being questioned, and then all the events that are happening uh, with the racial injustice against Black Americans. So I would say the future looks very optimistic, but there is a lot of concerns uh, in the near term that we need to watch. But still, one needs to be optimistic, and I believe it's time to lean forward, as fear is the only thing that can limit one's potential. I love that. And I'm curious, you know, this is a question I've been getting a lot uh, lately, particularly since the murder of George Floyd. And that is what role or responsibility, if any, does a company have beyond sort of meeting its legal requirements to take a position on, on social matters, on, on social issues? I think it's extremely important for people who are privileged and in positions of power and companies which are thriving to have a culture of diversity and inclusion. And they should make an extra effort to make sure they have diversity in their workforce, they have diversity on their boards, and they're bringing in students from the underrepresented minority colleges and even making an effort uh, in order to recruit people from some of those underrepresented colleges, because everybody goes after uh, the top 10 schools, but we need to have a balance. And as I mentioned earlier, we need to just make sure we do well, but at the same time, do good by others. Mm. And so do you think we're going to see more companies embracing more of a combined mission, you know, what some people call a double bottom line of a a business and a financial set of objectives, as well as kind of a social uh, set of objectives as well? Uh, I think we'll see more and more of that. So let me tell you, for example, uh, what we are doing and what I have been focused on for the years. Uh, my belief is venture capital also needs to change. And uh, instead of just venture capitalists of investing money and helping entrepreneurs and helping them build big companies, we need to become conscious capitalists where we take a balance of what we can do, not only financially, but what can we do for human and planetary evolution in the form of giving back some of the financial resources we have, but also giving back our time. And as part of that, Mayfield is making a pledge forward where we are going to contribute on a yearly basis 1% of our management fee 
and 1% of our carry and are starting many programs where we are giving pro bono time to help students, uh, to help job seekers, uh, and to help entrepreneurs with our time in order to get them an opportunity that may not have been available to them at the schools and the regions they might be based in. Wow, that that's incredible. And for some people who may not be familiar with venture capital, they might not realize that particularly 1% of the carry, I mean, you guys have some extraordinary returns. And, um, you know, that 1% could be a very meaningful number over time, could it not? It could be, right? It could be millions of dollars on an annual basis that we want to give back uh, without getting into specific numbers to the broader community. And uh, in the past, right, like, uh, we had established around 30 years back Mayfield Fund Foundation. So this is not something new uh, where we have we have been giving back to the society, but we are just stepping it up to the next level and saying, hey, 1% of whatever we make, let's use it for social causes and help the underrepresented groups. So it's a meaningful commitment, right? Uh, and the whole team is excited to contribute to that. And that's what I meant by let's move from just being venture capitalists to becoming conscious capitalists. Yeah, it's a it's a powerful shift, I think. The other one I'd be curious uh, to get your thoughts on, you know, Silicon Valley has not historically been a place where there's been uh, an abundance of African-Americans. And one of the parts of the conversation that I feel, you tell me how you feel, that's been missing of late is you know, sort of the mantra I like is in addition to Black Lives Matter is Black entrepreneurs matter. Because I myself know as somebody who grew up, you know, with a paper route when I was 10 years old and, and grew up uh, um, in, in an economically struggling environment, to put it nicely, is that um, for some people, entrepreneurship is a way uh, up in the world. And that's that's great if you're a Stanford student and you write an incredible product or algorithm or whatever it is and away you go. Congratulations. That's fantastic. I, I certainly have no problem with that. But for many of us entrepreneurs, including myself, entrepreneurship was a way out, a way out of, for some, a life of poverty or a way out of a life of struggle. Mm -hmm. And I believe that uh, when one entrepreneur rises up and she creates a great company and a great product and a great category, not only does she rise uh, out, but she often takes, you know, many, many others with her. And so I'm curious as to what you think about sort of entrepreneurship, particularly in underserved parts of the country and certainly in the African-American community. So what I would say is work has to be done by everybody. Uh, it has to be done by people uh, who want to be entrepreneurs. They need to just lean forward and make the plunge. Uh, they need to go make sure they get good mentors, uh, whether it's their advisors, whether it's former entrepreneurs, whether it's potential customers, whether it's legal firms, or people like you beyond venture capitalists whom they can look upon and get some advice. And I call that mentorship capital. And once they have those things in place, please come approach the venture community because uh, we are all focused around funding innovation and helping people achieve their dreams. 
So it's going to be an extra effort, I would say, for all. And uh, one of the programs at Mayfield uh, we have been working on that we'll be announcing in the next few weeks is access for all. How do we make our resources? How do we make our capital available all across the board? And Mayfield has had a history of investing globally. So not only have we invested in the US in our 50 plus year history, uh, we helped raise funds for investing in China. We have dedicated funds for investing in India. Uh, we have made investments, not just in Silicon Valley, but in every region uh, in the United States. So one has to go and keep an open mind and go find the best entrepreneurs and the best opportunities and help them scale. One of the things I find curious, you know, I've lived now in, in the Silicon Valley area for the better part of 25 years. And in my time here, and I don't have data sitting in front of me, but just my personal experience, there's been a breakthrough of uh, pretty significant proportions of the number of Indian entrepreneurs, uh, Indian venture capitalists, uh, Indian players throughout the ecosystem in Silicon Valley. And, and the Indian community now has established itself and is deeply intertwined with Silicon Valley. And, and, and it seems like there's been a pretty big shift in that over the 25 years or so that I've been around. I'm curious as to sort of what your assessment of that is and then what, if any, learnings there might be there. Absolutely, right? So I'm a product of that myself. Uh, I came to the United States in 1992 to pursue my grad school at Stanford. Uh, and based on my grad school work in the area of streaming video over the internet, I started my first company in 96. Uh, I was 25 years old. Uh, I knew nothing about what it takes to start a company or to run one, but people made bets on me. And then I went on to do two more successful companies. And from 96, uh, to 2020, at least in Silicon Valley, we are finding that if you are looking at companies with deep technology in enterprise and semiconductors, like at least I would say 40 to 50% of the entrepreneurs happen to be of Asian origin, if you will, whether they're first generation entrepreneurs or second generation entrepreneurs. Why did it happen? Uh, it started all with education. If you look at India, it has always had great schools, but they weren't opportunities in technology in the 90s, 80s, and the early 2000s. It's different now, 20, 30 years later. So a lot of those students, majority of them from IITs, like me, came to the United States, went to the best schools, did great work, had great mentorship from their academic advisors, and they knew how to solve technical problems that were not solvable by others. And then the venture community saw that. They had a huge role in funding some of these emerging entrepreneurs. And once they started seeing success with people of Indian and Asian origin, it just fuels the next entrepreneur, the next entrepreneur, the next entrepreneur, at the same time, the first generation entrepreneurs who succeeded, they started becoming board members and advisors for the new entrepreneurs who are starting. And many of them 
ended up after being entrepreneurs becoming VCs. And that includes people like me, that includes people like Vinod Khosla and many others, right? So once it's all about familiarity, you see what is the educational background, what is the work ethic, and there ends up being this mentorship support and just the venture support around it. And it's a network effect. So once you get critical mass, the network just starts growing. And we do talk about people, uh, companies like Facebook and LinkedIn and others having a network effect. Entrepreneurism is like that. That once you just get critical mass from a certain school, a certain uh, diverse group, people just get familiar. And then the people who succeed help people of the same community. And it just self-fulfills and just keeps going. Yeah, it reminds me of that uh, saying, you know, we, we become an amalgamation of, of the people that we surround ourselves with, right? And one of the things that I've noticed, it was absolutely true for me, in some ways it still is true for me, and I think it's true for many others, is if we have a particular dream that we're driving towards, we have to see an example of that dream somebody that's directionally in the, in, the, in, the, in the spot we would like to get or in the direction that we would like to go that is somehow relatable to us, that, that allows us to see ourselves in a role similar to them. And I think many of us are inspired by that. And so there needs to be people who break and take new ground. Um, and then this ecosystem develops. But the thing I find interesting about the Indian uh, sort of breakthrough that's happened in my time in Silicon Valley is, um, at least now, you'll tell me maybe what it was like earlier on, it doesn't feel, let me say this, as a non-Indian, it does not feel self-referential to me. That is to say, I, I have and I do work with Indian entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and so forth. And I ceased thinking, them, thinking about them as such a long time ago. So I would evaluate an Indian um, uh, executive or entrepreneur in no different way and um, the accent or the skin color melts away within sort of 30 seconds of the conversation and you're just dealing with another uh, hopefully professional. <laughs> and so I, I guess that leads me to the Indian community has sort of done a great job of being self-referential and supporting itself and so forth. But at the same time, I feel a kinship with many, many Indian entrepreneurs. And so there's also a, a, I don't know if this is the right word, Naveen, but like an integration that's happened as well that, that, that uh, folks like you have just become part of the fabric and you're just another dimension of Silicon Valley. And I think a lot of us don't think that much about it anymore, but I'm curious how it is for you. So I think first and foremost, I would say uh, I'm blessed by the opportunity I was given to come to Stanford for my master's and PhD on a fellowship that somebody else had endowed, right? And that's where this culture of giving back came in. Uh, as far as getting integrated into the fabric, I think Silicon Valley and United States, most of the states are most welcoming to immigrants because if you go back in history, America is a country of immigrants. So I've never faced any issues in being a fabric of the society here. It's been always welcoming and equal opportunity has been given. And I think now the people who were given that opportunity, even coming in as immigrants, it's upon them 
to give that same opportunity for gender diversity and color diversity. And Mayfield, for example, early last year, we announced a partnership uh, with M12 Ventures, which is the venture arm of Microsoft and Melinda Gates Venture Fund to run a global females founder competition. And uh, we got thousands of applications. And earlier this year, uh, we announced the winners of that competition. So we are trying to do everything that others did for us. How do we do and give back? But to me, unless uh, you get hit by it and say diversity and inclusion is important and somebody did it for me, I need to do it for others. So that to me has to be true to your value, has to be true that I need to give back because somebody gave me the opportunity which I couldn't have had on my own. And I think hence, taking stuff which is available in Silicon Valley and taking it outside, not only the US, but within the US to other founders who are from diverse ethnic groups is extremely important. Mm. And that's what I call access for all, right? Why only limit it to a certain set of communities? Let's make that extra effort to welcome the different communities and give them equal access. Until we yes. start, nothing is going to happen, right? Because a lot of times people say, hey, uh, whatever I do is not going to make a difference. But if everybody even drops a drop of water in a bucket, you won't realize when it fills. When the bucket fills, you can fill multiple buckets. And one day, you could fill up a pond. And then we'll worry about a river or something. Yes, it, it's very powerful. And I just, I want to make sure I, I get what you said. You were able to come to Stanford from India on an academic scholarship, which allowed you to get a master's and ultimately a PhD. And that was funded by somebody else. Did I, did I get that right, Naveen? Yeah, yeah. What I would say is the master's was funded by a fellowship or a scholarship, which was endowed uh, by an anonymous donor. And then to do the PhD, I went on as a research assistant because you have to do research. But story for another time, I dropped out out of the PhD program, even though I'd published 35 papers. I uh, took a one-year leave of absence to start a company, VXtreme, uh, in early 96. So, But the opportunities were given to me by a donor, anonymous, who pledged a fellowship for international students. And then the grants were probably coming from NASA or DOD to fund the work I could be able to do. Yes. So that's why it's so close to my heart and is a fundamental value, right? Somebody did it for me. Yes. So if I can do it in any which way, why won't I do it for others? Yes. It's interesting. I wish I could remember who I heard say this because I would love to give them credit for it. This is so this is not an original idea. But I heard this recently. Um, somebody said, think about times in your life where you benefited in a pretty meaningful way from the kindness or generosity of others. Because a lot of people talk about making it on your own and this and that and the other. And I just started to go back in my life. And it's hard to make the entire list because I think of one and then I think of another and then I think of another and another and another. 
and 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 some of the that was individuals some of that was the generosity of of, of pro you know there was a, a entrepreneur program that was available to me that I applied for when I was 18 19 years old uh, that was sponsored by a major company in Canada that that benefited me tremendously and on and on and on and it was like I I had never realized wow if you sit back and look at all of the times where you have benefited materially from either a programmatic or an organization or a government or an individual, the, the list is a long list, isn't it? It absolutely is, right? And it starts with your parents and family always. And then it goes on to your mentors, your professors, and you get into work and venture capitalists help you. Your employees help you, your executives help you, right? Like it's all about being on a team. And every day, I think one needs to wake up and thank for the opportunity they are given and thank, right? Like everybody for everything they help you do. Yeah. And uh, the, the interesting thing, and I, I don't know if this is true for you, but I never anticipated being at this stage of my career. It was not something that I ever thought about. You know, when I was a young guy coming up, I was just working my tail off to do whatever I was doing and trying to achieve what I was trying to achieve and so forth and so on. And I never thought about this stage uh, where, you know, I spend most of my time today trying to throw down the rope, you know, trying to do exactly what you're describing, uh, which is try to make a contribution to give back. My heroes in business, my heroes in life all gave back in meaningful ways particularly after they achieved what they wanted to achieve. And, and then they got more focused on, on making that kind of a contribution. And I, it's, it's, it's a strange place to be in life, to realize that you're not the young guy up and coming. You're the old been there, done that guy. And when you get to the been there, done that guy stage, uh, your job now is actually meaningful change. Your job is to make a difference for the next generation. And I had never really thought about that until I got to this place in my life. And I'm I'm curious how you think about it, Naveen. Uh, absolutely, right? Like in the same way. Uh, I have a long way to go. Uh, I turned 49, right? And I'm making a plan. How do I make sure Mayfield lasts uh, for another 50 years? And for that, uh, building the next generation is pretty critical because at some point, as a leader, uh, succession planning will have to happen down the road and grooming the next generation. And at the same time, uh, I have to think through the opportunities I got and the stuff I'm talking about with conscious capital. I have a lot of runway still, right? Like over the next 10 to 15 years on what can I do, which is just beyond building Mayfield, helping entrepreneurs, making money for our limited partners. So I'm making it a priority that the rise of the individual is extremely important. Until now, uh, I was primarily focused on helping entrepreneurs uh, achieve their dreams. Then I said, huh, what can we do with Stanford? Uh, because it's nearby. So we have a Mayfield Fellows program there where we are training uh, 12 students a year to become leaders of tomorrow. Then you said, okay, which are the other underrepresented communities? Uh, what can we do for them from a monetary perspective, from a time perspective? Then you look at internally, uh, whether it's your own household, what can you do for your kids? Same thing, then you look at your employees. 
So how do you help not only the entrepreneurs achieve their dream, but look at people around you and see what can you do to help accelerate their journeys in order to get to the next level? Yes. So that switch clicked for me, I would say, honestly, three to four years back, where I started thinking about that, hey, uh, I've figured out how to be an investor, how to basically help entrepreneurs succeed in big companies, trying to be uh, a good person at home with my wife and my kids and my parents. But what else can I do with my life? Because we are blessed, as you said, to have the opportunity uh, that we have. So let's make something out of it. But the way I want to do it is I want to integrate it into the daily work I do. I don't see it as disconnected. Yes. Right. And my strong belief is uh, one should do their karma and not focus on the results. So if you invest in relationships and not transactions, good stuff will happen. Who knows, right? Like we do an effort with the female founders competition. We funded a small group of them, but let's see what they become. But from the thousands of others who didn't make it, at least they got feedback on what works, what doesn't work. Yes. So that's what uh, I'm trying to do is to figure out how do we amplify what we know beyond just funding eight, 10 companies a year. And even the companies we fund, I would say, uh, uh, I'm doing a piece uh, in a few weeks around uh, the companies we are trying to fund are going to be all about human and planetary evolution. Because how do we become, make humans, superhumans using technologies like AI? And how do we do companies which are beneficial for the planet and increase the longevity of all of us, not only humans, but the entire ecosystem? So a lot of these things can still be achieved by your daily work if that bug hits you and it has hit me hard. That's fantastic. It's so interesting, uh, Naveen, we're talking about this. Literally yesterday, I was talking to an entrepreneur, a wonderful entrepreneur, and he was sharing with me how part of his motivation to make some money was he wanted to do all these good things and charitable things and there were these areas he cared about and so forth and so on. And he was sort of viewing them as disconnected. And the conversation I uh, asked him to consider, in the conversation I asked him to consider, I said, what if they're actually connected somehow? Yeah. He said, what do you mean? We, we started sort of brainstorming about how his sort of dream on one end and his dream on the other might actually be much closer together than he had thought. And so we started to brainstorm ways about how he could integrate them. So it wasn't this thing he was going to do later after he made a bunch of money. He could actually build his business, incorporate this vision for this, this social mission that he cared about into his business and, and have sort of a virtuous circle of both sides, if you will, working together. And, and in that way, they might actually make an even bigger difference on, on, on both the profit and the and the sort of social good side. Correct. And I think that's what with our pledge 1%, right? Like giving our fees and carry with the good stuff we're going to do in return. We're going to do good by others too, because we're using the capital from our daily job to redirect it to causes which can help others. And then if we take 
the lens of being a conscious capitalist and invest in things that are going to make the human and the planet better, it becomes one force, one direction, one mission, and you're just marching towards it as a force. And then hopefully you amplify those things. And for example, in the 90s, not only did we have the Mayfield Fund Foundation, which we still have, we had started something called the Entrepreneurs Foundation, uh, which we are figuring out how to uh, reinitiate it in a different form, where we were able to convince companies to pledge 100K of their stock uh, for giving back to the community. And uh, it's common stock at your Series A. And you know what? Everything adds up. So if 100 startups want to give $100,000 at Series A, again, this could be millions of dollars that could be going in an aggregate. Uh, so that's where our head is. It's very similar to what Salesforce is doing with its pledge 1%, where you're taking 1% of your profits, 1% of your product, and 1% of your time. It has to just get integrated in your way of thinking, right? It's your way, it's a way of thinking where these cannot be disparate efforts. They have to be integrated, as you mentioned. Yes. Yes, it's it's a powerful aha that has sort of been developing over the last handful of years. And uh, it feels like to me, and I certainly hope this is true, but I'd like to bounce it off you that um, this this time that we're living in, this sort of in the triad of uh, crisis we have with a health crisis and an economic crisis and now a social justice crisis, uh, that these ideas that were percolating before and certainly had momentum for sure uh, seem to be, I hope, are, are going to be accelerated here. Uh, but I'd be curious as to your reaction to that. Yeah, absolutely. I think like the, this is a wake up call uh, to people. And I hope all of us, right, with the events which are happening, uh, step up, right? This, these times require leadership and not assuming that somebody else will do it. One needs to think, what can I do? What can, how do I make a difference? So I absolutely agree with you, right? Like this is a wake up call for people to think beyond themselves and think about the greater good of the planet and of society. And it's reflecting in yeah. our work, right? Like basically I'll just pick uh, a few things, right? Like where we are investing, right? And for example, uh, one of the things uh, we are uh, investing a lot is on biology as a technology, where with the advances that are happening in CRISPR, with the advances that are happening in gene editing, bioprinting, the advent of AI models, how do you look at bio beyond healthcare as a fundamental science and look at alternative fuel, food, alternative fuels, alternative materials, which are greener, and even computing, right? So that's becoming a fundamental um, thesis or theme area of us moving forward. Similarly, a lot of the work uh, in artificial intelligence has happened. People are worried about humans losing their job, but the efforts Mayfield is making is, how do you help? How do you leverage AI? to make humans into superhumans, so rather than displacing them, make them better, right? Have them move up the value chain, uh, if you will. 
so I think those are some of the things I would say in these times. They're very topical. They are, there is a need. These are painkiller products uh, for the market, but it requires a thinking and a focus to say, you know what? Let's go deep. It's a real problem. But if you're going to do this, you're not going to do something else. So say no to that. Yes. And, and the, the no's are in some ways more important than the yeses, aren't they? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Like I am quoted again and again for saying, right? Like you need to know what your true north is and you need to focus because startups die of indigestion and not starvation. And that's the case for venture capitalists. That's the case for every company. But it applies a lot to startups who have very little capital, if you will. So I think like it's extremely important to have. It's actually more important to have your not-do list before you get onto your do list. Sounds like you're recommending that people uh, figure out what their category and niche is and uh, focus on, in on that category. <laughs> Absolutely, right? Like my, my feeling is, and you write a lot and talk about it, uh, I'm a strong believer that painkillers sell, vitamins don't. You need to make sure, like, whatever you're doing is a must-have. It's not a nice-to-have. Rather than going six inches deep in 20 areas, pick one area. Initially, it might be a niche, it might be small, but go dig a trench. Once you become the king or queen of that hill, rather than jack of all hills, you get the chance to essentially become dominant in not only that, but in every other market over time. Look at what Microsoft did. Look at what Google has done or Facebook has done. They did one thing well and kept doing it, kept rinsing and repeating it, got world dominance on it, used the margins and profits from those to go fund other things. But the DNA and muscle memory they end up building to be the number one in that market essentially allows them to go do the same things in other areas. You know, this topic you're on, Naveen, is, it's sort of one of the ones that I wish more entrepreneurs and frankly, more people in their careers individually understood it because it's such a mental dichotomy it doesn't make it, it doesn't make any freaking sense in your head to say if you focus tightly on a niche sometimes a very narrow one and you get very good at it you get world class at it and you get to a point where you define world class on it you define and design the niche and you become the queen or king of that niche then you've earned the right to expand and so by by niching down you get to go big over time. And it's it's a dichotomy. And to many people, it seems counterintuitive. But to your point, whether it's Microsoft or so many of the other legendary companies we respect and admire in our industry, um, almost all of them started off in a fairly tight niche and used that as a beachhead and expanded out over time. And yet when people look at those companies today with their broad portfolios and their dominance in multiple market categories and so forth, they seem to forget that that's how it started. Yeah, I think like company building is a marathon, not a sprint, right? So you're running a marathon, but the niches are uh, the first few things you do, right? You have to last for 100 miles, 500 miles, 50 years, but you can't do it all in the first year. Similar, So you need to pace yourself, right? To be able to get to the next thing and the next thing. And I've seen companies they try to do too much stuff. 
and they can't become the best at anything. And companies who are their competitors just pick one market each of what they are trying to address and kill them. So history has repeated itself. And one shouldn't be worried, right? Like that, hey, this market is too small because markets evolve, right? Markets evolve. You have to make sure your product is a painkiller and not a vitamin. If it's a must-have and a broader set of customers or consumers need it, the markets will expand. And if the markets were so big, the incumbents wouldn't be doing it, right? They would be having products. So that's the opportunity for a startup. Go after an emerging market, a blue ocean market, where a pain is emerging, right? And just go there and become the best at it and grow at the pace of the market. Yes. And I I also had one more belief, having worked at Microsoft, right? They had a rule of three. The number one player in a market makes all the profits. The number two breaks even, and there's no number three over time, right? So if you look at, let's look at today, right? There's Windows, there, there is Linux, and then there's nothing else. You look at iOS, then there's Android, and then there's nothing else. But we know where the profits are from the market caps of companies, <laughs> right? You look at search, right. there is Google, which makes all the money. Uh, it's debatable who number two is and who's number three doesn't exist. So that's what focus can do because uh, the number one player is going to take away all the profits and have like 80% market share. So if you don't focus, right, you're just not going to go anywhere. Yes. This is another one. And frankly, it was a huge part of the my personal motivation for wanting to write my first book, Play Bigger. I constantly heard Oh, well, this is going to be a big market as the rising tide floats all boats. And, you know, we just want our fair fair share or maybe a little more than our fair share. And I look at it and go, hey, in market category after category after category, it's exactly what you just said. And I would hear this argument over and over and over again. And it was almost like, I don't know. 15, 20 years ago, like this was some kind of a secret. It seemed like a secret hiding in plain sight to me, but um, I'm curious how prevalent you now think this aha is in our industry. I think people are still struggling with it because their eyes are bigger than their appetite. And I think as long as entrepreneurs have good board members, good advisors, and good VCs, the companies which become big uh, are able to build a big business on their first product. But we know, right, like of the 10,000 Series A's that are done per year, how many end up becoming of that uh, cohort multi-billion dollar companies? 10, 20, 30? The numbers are not more than much that, right? So what happens to the rest? They didn't practice this mantra, right? So they keep making the same mistakes because they're not able to get good advisors, they're not able to get good VCs, they're not able to get good, so they just make the same mistakes. So to me, pattern recognition is so important and startups and venture capital is an apprenticeship business. You're supposed to make new mistakes, not the same mistakes others have made over time. That's why people like you can help companies. People should be reading books, 
They should be reading case studies and talking and learning what not to mm-hmm. do. To me, what not to do is actually more important than what to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. You need to have a kill list. Yes. You need to have a kill list, right? Basically, before you get on, what are we not going to do? That's how I start my meetings. What are we not going to do? I know we have a lot of ideas. We can't do them all. One day we will. But these are the objectives of the firm. These are our mission. These are our value. Some of these ideas are against our values. We're just not going to do that. I love I love that idea of starting off a meeting by asking, what are we not going to do? Yeah, because <laughs> you're ideas. right. Everybody wants to talk about what we are going to do. Right. Yeah. By the way, that's an important one for government because I hear a lot of discussion about what we're going to do. And what we rarely hear as citizens is the government say, and to fund it, we're not going to do this and that and the other. We always hear what the government's going to do. We don't hear what they're not going to do. I love that question. Yeah, no, I think it's so critical. I want to circle back. You said some awesome, um, awesome shit earlier. You used the phrase biology as a technology. Yep. And multiple times you use this phrase superhumans. So could you kind of drill into those concepts for me? Yeah, absolutely. And how you think about them? So one of the big areas uh, we are looking at human-centered AI, where we believe uh, the purpose of AI should not be to displace or replace humans, but to augment them and make them better at doing not the repetitive and mundane tasks, but do tasks that will be more fulfilling to them. So let's look at a few examples on human-centered AI. Uh, A first example is uh, security professionals are sitting in security operations center and looking at events which are happening. For some of the big companies, there's a billion security events. As a human, a group of 10 people, 20, 50, 100, you can't watch all of them. But you can use AI to triage 99% of the events out of the billion, leave 1% and flag it, or even 0.1% to humans. So use the humans of what they are good at. You can do the same with radiology. There's a shortage of radiologists in this country and globally. They can't be in every hospital, so they're centralized. You can use AI to zoom into the things only the radiologist should be looking. And this problem can be repeated in industry by industry, if you will, whether it's RPA. So do things with data and AI that are hard for humans to do, which is processing a lot of information and having attention to detail, but leave the complicated things that require human knowledge and human brains to go do. Uh, Similarly, in biology as a technology, uh, Mayfield has been blessed to have invested in companies starting the 1970s and 80s in companies like Genentech, uh, Amgen. Uh, The first one was Biotech. Second one was Biopharma. We were investors in Intuitive Surgicals, uh, which was the first surgical uh, equipment for heart surgery, non-invasive. Then we were also investors in single cell sequencing companies. So if you look at biology, was used more for therapeutics, right? Curing diseases uh, and some diagnostics, right? And that's what the first 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2000, uh, 
40, 50 years of it was. But now if you look at biology as information technology and look at something Mayfield calls engineering biology, which is how do you look at the intersection of information technology with biology and look at what problems can engineering and biology combine together to solve beyond healthcare. So this is where what you're seeing with alternative foods, which are plant-based, whether it's Beyond Meat or some of the others, you're seeing biofuels, you're seeing biomaterials, uh, you're seeing precision medicine, you're seeing precision diagnostics, where you can use all this stuff and use computational technology to personalize everything. And so that's what I meant is evolution of biology, not as biotech, but the intersection of biology and information technology. What can it do? And we are calling it engineering biology, which we believe will reinvent trillion dollar industries and will be better for humans and better for the planet. So, Naveen, I, first of all, all that's freaking awesome. Way to go. <laughs> it's fascinating and, and very, very forward on your skis. And there's so much here. Uh, we could do a 12-part series. One thing I want to go to is I'll never forget in the late 90s, early 2000s when um, the genome was mapped. And as a result of that, I had, and I think many people had, uh, this aha that, that uh, essentially life is code. That is to say, when a fruit tree drops the orange, when an orange tree drops the orange, there's a piece of code that goes off in the DNA of that plant that says, when the fruit gets to a certain size and a certain weight and a certain color and a this and a that and the other, it's ready, drop it. And it's essentially not unlike executing a command in a line of code. And I remember just having my head explode when I realized, what? wait a minute, life is code. And of course, then the next aha is, well, wait a minute, that changes disease because then you begin to realize, or sort of the next realization I had was when a person who's healthy becomes unhealthy from something or becomes no longer healthy from something that isn't a virus they caught, i.e. cancer, um, there's a breakdown in the code. There's a bug in the code that needs to get fixed. And you and I in the software industry, of course, we understand bugs and fixing them and, and all of that. And when you realize, well, wait a minute, we are going to be able to find the bug, recompile the code and deliver a new executable as a potential way to cure something like a cancer. And so, you know, I remember having these ideas as some of these key realizations came out after the genome was mapped. And I sort of have been wondering ever since, Naveen, when was the day going to be where we were going to see this notion of essentially exactly the way you've described it, biology as technology uh, become mainstream and actually tip? And so I guess that leads me to that question. Um, where where are we in the sort of uh, growth of biology as a technology? And w when do you see uh, this really breaking out? 
Uh, it's already happening, right? Uh, basically, if you look at uh, what is exactly, so there are many, many startups in our portfolio and outside, which I don't plan to promote, uh, but we saw, we saw five. You can promote a couple if you like. I'm, I'm curious. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll do that then, right? So uh, five years ago, uh, we saw the ability to marry the engineering approaches of information technology with advances in biology could create a big opportunity for a whole new class of companies. And the way it started is we call it the engineering biology innovation loop. Uh, the loop starts with innovation in digiting biology that quantifies the living state. And it creates data that allows for IT innovations like cloud computing, AI, and ML to be applied to life sciences. So this didn't exist. Cloud computing and having compute to do machine learning and AI didn't exist. So you start with digitizing bio, which is being done by using things like CRISPR-based DNA and RNA detection, single cell sequencing, mobile and uh, variables. But once you take that and marry it to IT innovations like cloud computing and machine learning, and there's been some groundbreaking invest, uh, advances in the space, such as the cost of whole genome sequencing for a person has fallen from $1 billion 15, 20 years back to about $100. And this allows for finding sequence differences between individual cells of a person at very low cost and creates accurate diagnostics, which are enabled with emerging CRISPR toolkits and continuous data streams from variables. So as far as mentioning uh, some of the companies, uh, I would mention uh, Mammoth Biosciences, uh, which is uh, Jennifer Doudner, who's the inventor of CRISPR, along with a PhD student from Stanford and two from UC Berkeley. Uh, they're going after diagnosing diseases like the COVID one, right? Uh, Mission Bio, another company of ours, is essentially doing single cell sequencing for detection of cancer, right? We have more companies which are in precision health, uh, maternal fetal testing, and non-invasive neuromodulation uh, for mentally challenged people, if you will, who have diseases that are not curable. So we are seeing a lot of this is here and now, and these companies have to focus. Now somebody can say, hey, what's the market for this? Zero. What will the market be in five years? I think a few hundred million. What will it be in 10 years? Billions of dollars. So you need to live a dream. And <laughs> as entrepreneurs and VCs, right? Like uh, just assemble your parachute and jump from the plane. So that's what we are trying to do. But this is real, Christopher. Uh, this is real. This is not science fiction yeah. now. This is real. And over the next five to 10 years, this is the future with the combination and intersection of information technology with biology. It's so exciting. Um, it's a field that I have uh, not tracked deeply. I'm, I'm certainly far from an expert. But it's a it's a field ever since the late 90s I've been fascinated in and trying to keep keep an eye on. And and it's amazing that you guys have decided to go so deep. 
maybe let me ask you some naive questions. Um, in our lifetime, is there a uh, technology biology solution to, if not all cancers, some cancers? I, I think I'm very optimistic that with all the work that has happened with CRISPR, all the new work which is happening with uh, the single cell sequencing and the low-cost PCRs, uh, I'm very hopeful that many of the diseases uh, should be curable or they should elongate the lifespan of a patient. So I'm an optimist, right? Like I only think about the upside and uh, <laughs> my belief is if you think positive, positive happens. It's the principle of karma. Yes. And so you think there is a chance that with meaningful diseases that affect so many of us and so many of our families um, that have a genetic component and, and some, it sounds like that don't have a genetic component like a, like a COVID or maybe it's partially genetic and partially virus. I don't know. We'll, we're going to learn more, but the bottom line is you think that some of these advanced technologies will allow us to uh, recompile the code that makes up you and I in a way that improves and or elongates our lives, particularly in the face of some of the most horrible um, diseases and medical conditions that people get? I'm very hopeful, and I think it'll start with detection of these diseases, and then uh, precision medicine uh, will be the future. And I think when desktop computers started, right, like there was a feeling Bill Gates had a vision that desktop PCs will be on every, everywhere, right? Big companies didn't believe it. I won't mention their names. Similarly, when cell phones came, people said it's a niche market. Like, look, landlines don't exist. It's all about cell phones now. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think like, one has to, I think technology, innovation with what's available with AI, ML, cloud computing, and some of the bio innovations, I think the impossible is possible. Look, like we are sending spaceships uh, with reusable rockets, right? Like in a company like SpaceX, which is not, right? It's a private company, what they've been able to do. Cars yes. are driving on the road in autopilot, right? So anything is possible if brilliant minds focus on it. Uh, you can do wonders, right? It's all about focus and ambition. And once you do that, you will make progress from where you are. Now, whether it's 100% curable, right? I don't know, but it won't be the status quo. It'll be better than where we are today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's, I'm thinking of a, a quote Bill Gates said years ago um, that I think is, is pertinent to this discussion, which is people overestimate a new technology in the beginning and underestimate it over time. And if I get to the genome example, you know, I remember meeting Craig Vintner at, at a TED shortly after it had, after, after the genome had been mapped and he was the first person to do it and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, I remember thinking, okay, well, when are we all going to be able to do this? And it felt like nothing happened after that as a, as a, as somebody who's not an expert in the industry, but just a casual observer. It's like, well, a lot of nothing went on here for what felt like more than a decade. And then all of a sudden, to your point, um, you go to a uh, Christmas dinner and your sister-in-law gives you 
this thing that she bought for 125 bucks that you mail in called 23andMe, right? <laughs> it's like, and so you're like, well, wh- why isn't this thing taking off? And then all of a sudden it's transformed the world. And it sort of feels like that with where we are in technology today. You know, the internet was hyped. People claimed that it was overhyped. And if you look back and how the internet turned into what today, of course, we call the cloud and, and, and of course, mobile and so many things that have been stacked on top of the internet, the internet was kind of underhyped. It, the, the progress that we've made in the 25 or 30 years since the internet began to become commercial is absolutely stunning compared to where we started. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And one needs to just be op- optimist and uh, just great stuff will happen. Well, Naveen, uh, clearly uh, I would be happy talking to you about this stuff for a very long time, but I, I do want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Yeah, no, I would say uh, let's be optimistic. Let's think long run because company building uh, is a marathon, not a sprint. And it's time to lean forward because fear is the only thing that limits one's potential. And then... Uh, Last week, uh, I was listening to Dove Saitman's, some work of his, and something that came across, uh, which I think is very telling uh, that I would like to read is, uh, this is for the audience, when you press pause on a machine, it stops. When we pause as humans, we begin. So that's the opportunity that we are in today. We're not a machine, we are humans. It's time to begin and look forward. I mean, you're awesome. Thank you so much. I sure hope you do uh, come back at some point. I'd love to uh, lo- love to do this again with you. And, um, you know, as somebody who dearly loves uh, entrepreneurs and, and Silicon Valley, I also, I also need to acknowledge you for, um, you know, taking the reins of, uh, of a storied, uh, fabled firm in Silicon Valley and really taking it to a whole new level and a whole new place. Um, the founders of Mayfield, uh, I got to believe 50 years ago, would be uh, pretty excited to, to hear this conversation we just had. No, yeah, I'm just doing my part and trying to improve and learn every day and just keep my head up and keep going. Well, thank you, Naveen. Um, I really do appreciate this time. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be spending time with you and uh, really appreciate you having me here. Thank you. Well, there he is, Naveen Chada. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation. Now, as you know, America is getting ready to go back to work. But to win in this new economy, you need every advantage. And that's where my friends at NetSuite from Oracle come in. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, encompassing everything you need. Things like finance, HR, inventory, uh, multi-channel commerce, and more. And with NetSuite, you can manage every penny with precision. Whether you're doing a million bucks a year or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need. Recently, they published a great new guide called The 7 Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. Visit netsuite.com different to get your free guide and to schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com different. Now, in a crisis... Legendary organizations turn data into doing. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Splunk is the leader in data to everything, bringing data to every question, decision, and action. 
visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, and the letter E to learn how to turn data into doing. All right, we would like to thank Naveen Chowda himself. Thank you so much. You can find him on the internet at mayfield.com. My friends at onelifefullylive.org. This is an extraordinary organization that's been making a difference for about a decade now. And I'll tell you, I've been involved with One Life since before it was founded. And uh, the One Life team, led by Tim Rode, has, has been extraordinary in trying to make a difference in the inner city and in underserved communities and helping teach people resilience, business acumen, and entrepreneurship. Check out onelifefullylive.org today. My friends at Bottleneck on uh, Bottleneck.online are the world's leading distant assistant. If you want to help scale you with a uh, an assistant who's dedicated, committed, and uh, physically distanced from you, <laughs> check out Bottleneck.online. My friends at DeVry University have been making a difference in helping people build a better future for decades. Visit devry.edu today and Atranet will help you conquer your category with a legendary website. Visit atre.net today. And if you can make a difference, now's the time. Crack open your checkbook and write a big fat one for any local charity that can make a difference because the world needs people to make a difference, doesn't it? All right, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Warning, the creators of this podcast were probably consuming libations. We are produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's unbelievable, it's funny, it's grumpy, and it's what you need. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution and build Lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Keep your hands up and your chin down. In the event of a global recession, do some legendary marketing. Jimi Hendrix was right. Listen to Tom Waits. Only buy pasture-raised free-range eggs because chickens are people too. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Kim Kardashian. Sorry, Kimmy. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Stay legendary. Stay healthy. And until we're together again, follow your difference.